they cease to become a guest and they start to become a family member, if you will. And I guess that point in time is now where Pastor used to say, Brother Josh, would you come up to the pulpit and preach? And I guess uh, I've been here long enough that no longer am I new or a guest to the church, but we're family. Amen. 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 Not theologically relevant in any way, but I just thought I would point out the difference because it struck me as it struck me as warm. Yes. Amen. Can we turn this morning in our Bibles to Second Corinthians chapter twelve? Second Corinthians chapter twelve. We're going to be starting in verse seven. 2 Corinthians 12 and 7. Starting in verse 7, the scripture reads, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. And you guys can be seated again. Lord, I thank you, Jesus, for your word. I thank you for your spirit and for your anointing. I thank you, Lord, for your willingness to touch our hearts. I thank you for your willingness to guide us and lead us closer to your throne, closer onto a walk of righteousness with you, Lord. And I ask that you bless us here this morning, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, we learned a new word this morning in MIT. Passionated. 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 And, you know, I was thinking about, you know, passionated. And it, it, it is a new word. It makes sense. You probably won't find it in your dictionary. But, passionated. The word was introduced to us during MIT this morning. And the idea is that when you find yourself... I'm not going to preach your entire lesson this morning, Pastor, but when you find yourself in a place where you just need something else, you just need a charge, you just need a pump, you just need, you need to get back on track, you need to find your way back to that place where you just know that you're with God. And so one of the things, one of the tips, one of the words is become passionated for his work and for his kingdom. Rejuvenate that passion, passionated. And so I just wanted to, to introduce that new word to the congregation this morning. Thank you, Pastor, for the word passionated. Amen. But I want to introduce another word. Before I do so, um, I'm going to make a promise. It is currently 1031, and I'm putting 20 minutes on the clock. And so I had, when I was in the Air Force, a wise old sergeant told me the five B's 
of public speaking. And they're this. Be brief, brother. Be brief. And so to that end, I would like to present my title for this message. It's one word. One word. Dichotomy. Dichotomy. As the picture suggests, as well as the prefix die, it has something to do with two parts. You see, you see two seemingly opposite parts. You see a light card and a dark card. And so, the word dichotomy has something to do with two. And so, to that end, I would like to introduce our second reading today, coming from the book of Merriam-Webster. Turn to the word dichotomy. And when you have it, say amen. Amen. Dichotomy, it's a division between two mutually exclusive or contradictory groups or entities. In other words, it's something with seemingly contradictory qualities, this dichotomy. Like the phrase, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is speaking here, and he's revealing to us a dichotomy of what it is to be an apostle of Christ. Two seemingly unequal things. When I am weak, then I am strong. The two most commonly used senses of the word dichotomy are easily and oftentimes confused. On the one hand, there's an older sense that refers to a division of something into two groups, and they're often contradictory. This sense denotes a connotation of oppositeness. Another new word for us this morning. Oppositeness. Oil and water. They don't mix. Young and old. They're different. Good and evil. They're diametrically opposed to one another. Weakness and strength. So Paul is speaking to us in dichotomy here. Another sense, a newer sense, if you will, of dichotomy denotes something a little bit different. It denotes a thing that appears to have contradictory qualities while yet functioning despite an apparent division. And so you have an old sense of dichotomy where these things are separate, they're opposite, they're mutually exclusive. And you have another sense of dichotomy where you find something that contains two elements that are seemingly contradictory, and yet it functions together. In this sense, we see the great northern white cedar tree as it grows out of bedrock. We see life forming in inhospitable environments. We see moss growing on the side of rocks. We see these things that are seemingly contradictory, and yet, they function, despite the apparent division. A lemonade stand in the war zone. That's how Merriam-Webster defines it. You see this picture of a war-torn battlefield, and there's mud, and there's dust, and there's buildings burnt. There's husks. There's, you know, destruction. And in the midst of it, a lemonade stand. It's a dichotomy. And the lemonade stand functions, and it works but it doesn't seem like it belongs there. Beauty 
found in the midst of calamity. This is the newer sense of the word dichotomy. And before we continue, I want to give you a third sense. But this one is often accompanied by the word false, a false dichotomy. It's a kind of fallacy in which one is given only two choices when, in fact, other options exist. If you were really my friend, you'll give me what I want. You're my friend or you're not. If you give me what I want, you're my friend or you're not. It's false dichotomy. It's fallacious reasoning because there are more options than this. Another one. If you aren't Republican, you must be a Democrat. Any Libertarians in the house? Don't answer that. This is not a political speech. Another one. If you are the son of God, then command that these stones become bread. The devil speaks in false dichotomies to us. He gives us what seems like only two choices, when in fact, we have a way out. Amen? We have a God. We serve a God who is a way maker, as the song puts it. We serve a God who will make a path. He'll blaze a trail through our situation. And he offers another option to us. Amen. Another one. If you have the Holy Ghost, you should never fear. You should never doubt. You should never face depression. You should never face pain and suffering. It's a false dichotomy. The truth is, in the context of this portion of Paul's second epistle to the Corinthian church, he's preparing for another visit to Corinth. And as he writes to the church, he's defending his apostolic authority. He's defending his, his right to be an, an apostle of Christ, if you will. And as he defends this thing, he chooses to boast in his weaknesses. He chooses to boast in his fear. He chooses to boast in his pain and in his suffering. This is what he writes when he defends his apostleship. He's revealing a dichotomy of what it is to follow Jesus. When we follow the Lord, when we follow our Creator, our Savior, there's this, this present reality of pain and suffering. There's this present reality of what we feel, this present reality of what our flesh brings us. There's this present reality of what the world brings against us. And we can ignore it and we can pretend like it's not there. We can ignore it and we can pretend like it doesn't exist. We can put it away, lock away any pain, any hurt that I've ever had. Or we can acknowledge it and we can view it in light of who Jesus is and what he has for us. This is a dichotomy revealed by Paul with his words. He's revealing the presence of pain and suffering contrasted with the draw to respond to a Savior. Amen? And so, he boasts about his weaknesses. We find them in the context one chapter earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And he's saying, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? He says, I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, 
often near death, five times. At the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one, three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. This is Paul defending his apostleship. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. He says, and apart from all other things, there's this daily pressure of my anxiety for the churches. He says, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. This is the letter of Paul. This is Paul defending what it is to be an apostle of Christ. If I look upon my own life and I see, I see if I take these things and I connect them to myself, if I take what Paul writes here, danger of robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger from the city, danger from recordings of Siri, amen? I'm not sure if that was Siri. It might have been Google Assistant. Who knows? Maybe it was Alexa. But if I'm real with myself, and if I'm real with God, we kind of got into the subject a little bit during MIT about being real. And it starts with, I guess, being real with myself and acknowledging within myself. If I'm approaching a place of, lost focus, if I'm approaching a place of burnout, if I'm approaching a place of failure, if I've walked through a place of failure. Oftentimes, we find it frustrating, and I'm reading a little bit from what you gave us this morning because it just fits. Oftentimes, we find frustration with the shameful feeling of being lost, but the truth is, we walk through this present life and we experience pain. You will experience hurt. You will experience sufferings. As Paul writes it, he says, of all of these other things, of all of the things I've walked through, all of the beatings, all of the stripes, the shipwrecks, there's still this daily pressure of my anxiety for the churches. And I would say there's still this daily pressure of my anxiety to do what's right and follow the will of God. There's this daily pressure of your anxiety. Am I doing what's right by God? Am I walking righteously? Do I lift up holy hands? Am I repentant? Do I find myself? Am I in his spirit or not? I can't feel his spirit today. I can't feel his presence today. Where am I and where is my God? We feel that and it's the truth. And if we're real with ourselves, we'll acknowledge that there is this daily pressure and anxiety. There's this tension in our spirit. There's this tension in our being. Amen? And so, like Paul, he says, I will boast in my weakness, but I say we should acknowledge our weakness. Acknowledge your shortcoming. We were having a conversation around a campfire a few weeks ago, 
um, and I was talking to, what, it was literally a campfire, it really was. It wasn't just a metaphorical campfire conversation. Um, we were camping. And I found myself in the presence of ministers far more seasoned than myself. Older, I would say wiser. I would say more accomplished. I would say they've been there and done that, and I'm still figuring this thing out. And these guys were talking about the anxiety, the pressure, the tension that they feel every time they approach the pulpit. And they were talking about the inadequacy that they feel when they look at the breadth of the work that God has for them. And the truth is, if I get up here and I feel like I got this under control, I've got this in hand, then I'm probably in a worse place than if I get up here and I feel the pressure and the inadequacy that comes with preaching and teaching the Word of God. The pressure and the inadequacy whenever I view myself in light of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because he's great and he's greatly to be praised. He's high and he's lifted up. His name is above all things and all of the earth. He is God. He is creator. And what am I? What are you in light of his greatness? Amen? And so we feel, we feel that inadequacy in ministry. And we feel it as a saint, as a child of God. We see our own failures. David said, my transgressions are ever before me. He said, my sin is ever before me. He describes it. He describes what we all feel. And so if we're real with ourselves and we're real with our God, we acknowledge that with this life comes anxiety. With this life comes present sufferings. But we have to understand that he's greater and we have to understand what it is to lay down this burden at his feet. Amen? So, there's this tension within us that Paul wants us, he wants the reader to understand the coexistence of suffering and apostleship. He wants you to know that in your weakness, God's strength is perfect. He wants you to trust Jesus with your suffering because you'll find strength in that trust. Whenever you submit it to him at an altar, you find strength in that submission. Submission isn't a dirty word. The world gives it a negative connotation, you know, submit to some other power or some other will. Submit to some other human is the connotation that the world gives it. And it's spoken negatively and it's, take, it's been taken out of context into the beautiful thing that it is. When I'm submitted to my creator, when I'm submitted to my God, he pulls me through it and he works through my weakness and he works through my inadequacy. Not in spite of it, he works through it. He uses it. Amen? So, there's this tension that remains. And rather than an assurance, Paul's given us here, rather than an assurance that the presence of pain, the hurt, and the suffering that you experience, it's not an indictment against your walk with God by any means. The doubt, the fear, the anxiety, 
It's not an indictment against your walk with God. It's a reality of what it is to live in the flesh. It's a reality of what it is to walk in this flesh. Jesus experienced it himself, yet he was perfect. And we walk through these same things. We walk through temptation. We walk through loss. We walk through loved ones walking away from God. We walk through pain. We walk through sickness. And in spite of all of that, we acknowledge that his grace is sufficient. Amen. And so this tension, we live out our days on this earth, and we experience joy, we experience peace, we experience the uplifting, we experience baptisms just last Sunday, we experience a new heart turning to God, we experience the joy that comes with turning your life over and being filled with the Holy Ghost. It says that the angels rejoice when one comes to God, and we rejoice with them. We experience those things. We experience the highs of the life with God, and yet we experience the loss. We experience the suffering. We experience the loved ones who reject truth. We experience the family members that walk away from God. We experience hardship. We develop our doubts and we experience anxiety, depression, sickness, fatigue, those things, they come against us. There is a dichotomy of experiences in this life with Christ. So I'm not a social scientist, and I'm not a doctoral graduate of psychological studies, but I am an observer of people. And more importantly, I'm a participant in this human condition. I'm a participant. I experience what those around me experience. I experience what you experience. You experience what I experience. I'm a participant as well as you are. And what I've come to observe is this, that the human condition is one of dichotomy between our present suffering and the call to respond to the love of a Savior. This tension within us, this reality of present suffering, and the call to submit my suffering at the feet of Jesus, a call to lay it down before him at the altar, a call to submit it to him in brokenness, a call to submit it to him with a contrite heart. Again, David describes it. He says that the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. It's as if David looked into the future. It's as if David was of a line, a lineage, a dynasty of kings that would produce a savior one day. It's as if David had some connection to what God was going to do when he poured out upon us. It's as if David had some revelation of New Testament grace. Paul here isn't speaking of grace to cover his sin. No, Paul is speaking of grace that is sufficient to cover these sufferings that follow you along this walk, along this journey. These things that you might not be healed from. These things that your family members might not be delivered from. This thorn in his side, he says, he says, I prayed three times to the Lord to remove this thing from me. You know, scholars, they attribute this. It's likely a physical ailment that he's experiencing. It's likely something in his body. And he asks the Lord three times, remove this thing from me. And the Lord's response, my grace is sufficient for you. 
Well, what does that mean? Lord, I've got this thing ailing me. What are you, why are you talking about grace? Why are you talking about grace when this thing, it's this thorn that's in my side, this anxiety, this fear, this depression, you know, we create a false dichotomy that if you're really serving God and you're really praying like you should, that you're not going to experience these fears and these depressions, that you're not going to experience these things that come with the human condition. Could it be that we've created that? And so in that environment, in that man-made environment, we create an environment where we don't speak out, where we don't ask for help. We create an environment where we feel shame. And as we put it this morning, the shameful feeling of being lost. Because I'm feeling these things, and I don't think they're, I don't think they're aligned with the victory that I know my God carries. I'm feeling these things, and I don't think they're aligned with the spirit that I'm told I've been filled with, the spirit that I know the Scripture tells me that I have. And so, we must acknowledge that with this life comes present sufferings. With this life comes flesh, comes against us. The world comes against us. But it doesn't change the fact that we have a call to respond to a Savior. We have a call to respond to God's love. We have a call to respond when he reaches out his hand and he says, cast your burdens upon me, cast your burdens upon my feet, come to my throne, come to my cross, carry my cross. We have a responsibility to respond to his calling, to respond in submission to what he's asking us to do. And he's simply asking for our heart. He's simply asking that we trust in him. He's simply asking that we say, I understand these things that I carry. As Paul says, this thorn in my side, I understand that it's with me. And yet I trust that your grace is sufficient for me. I trust that your grace will get me through despite what I carry. Your grace will allow me. Your grace will allow me to speak your word. Your grace will allow me to lay hands on the sick and see them healed despite what's going on in me. Your grace will allow me to minister in your presence. Your grace will allow me to stand and tell the truth to this world. It's by your grace. It's by his grace alone that I'm even up here able to preach, that I'm even up here to speak. It's by his grace. It's not by any learning or any, anything I've done to prepare. It's not by anything I've done to earn the ability, the opportunity to minister in his presence. No, it's only by his grace. And if there's anything that I have learned, it's that I've accepted his grace. It's that I've accepted that it's enough to allow me to go further and further into his will for me. It's enough to allow me to go further and further down a path of righteousness. It's enough to stave off the shame and the guilt and all of that nonsense that comes with our flesh and allows me to walk deeper and deeper into his presence. It's only by his grace that you can continue to live for him, his grace. It's described, it's, we've been talking about, um, in youth class, we've been talking about a dichotomy, if you will. We've talked about choice. We've talked about Cain and Abel. We've talked about the garden experience. 
And what we find is there's this division between what God asks for us to do, what God asked them to do, what God commanded, and what their self-will desired to do. There's this dichotomy between their self-will and the command of God. And so we see the path that that leads Cain down. He eventually murders his brother. It takes him down a murderous path of envy because he wants to do things his own way. And he sees that Abel's sacrifice is worthy and his sacrifice is not. And God gives him a chance. He speaks with him. He says, Cain, why is your face fallen? Cain says, well, because you have not accepted my sacrifice. What God gives Cain is grace. He gives him a chance. And so what we've seen in class is that grace, it's an opportunity to respond to God's calling. It's an opportunity. Grace is a period of opportunity to respond to the call of a Savior. He says, Cain, would not your sacrifice be acceptable if you did it this way? Would not I accept you, Cain, if you did this? He says, this is what you must do. I'm giving you grace and instruction. Do this. Don't do that. Do this. And Cain rejects it. He rejected the grace that God gave him. This grace is a period. It's a, it's a time that he gives us to get it right. And so we see the story of Noah again in the Old Testament. And we see this grace period while Noah builds the ark. And God says, I'm looking upon the world and there's destruction and there's death and there's, there's self-dealing and there's, there's all of these things that are contrary to my spirit, to my word, all of these things that are contrary to my desires and I'm going to wipe them out. And yet he finds Noah, one man, finds grace in the eyes of God. But what does this grace provide? This grace doesn't say, well, you can keep on dealing and you can keep on living the way you're living, world, because my grace will cover that. My grace is sufficient. No, that's not what his grace is sufficient for. It's not sufficient that we would continue down a path of unrighteousness. His grace is sufficient that he would give us time to turn away from a path of unrighteousness and turn towards him. So we see, we see Noah. He's given all of this time to build this ark. And he's given this time to preach the truth. And he's given this time to draw and call others to him. And what happens? Nobody responds save Noah and his family. We have a world of people that Noah likely talked to in the century that it took him to build this ark. And nobody responds. The grace was given, but we see that there's an end period to this grace. We see that he will not always strive with flesh. He will not always strive with us. And so we must understand what this grace is. It's like whenever you pay a bill, sometimes your bill is a little bit late, but they give you a grace period. It doesn't mean that the bill is forfeit. It doesn't mean that the bill's not due, but you're given this extra time to get it right. And that's what God gives us in grace. And so I believe whenever he talks to Paul and he says, your grace is sufficient, my grace is sufficient for you. He doesn't say that I'm going to remove I'm going to avoid the sin. I'm going to avoid the suffering. I'm going to avoid the anxiety. I'm going to just move it completely. No. No, he says my grace is sufficient that you could be carried through it. Amen. So, this tension 
back to my notes. This tension builds within us. And I know I'm over 20 minutes. A false promise. The reality of present suffering and the call to submit that suffering at the feet of Jesus. Because his plan and your pain are not mutually exclusive. They aren't meant to exist apart from one another. We've managed to build walls inside of our hearts. We've managed to separate those two things. We have managed to create a false dichotomy within ourselves. And we talked about it even this morning in MIT. We've managed to to find this shameful feeling of being lost and not understand what to do with it. We build these walls. The term we used this morning was reinforced concrete. We find like-spirited people and we reinforce these walls that we build up within ourselves, around ourselves. And I find someone who experiences the same anxiety as I do and we talk it out and he gives me a brick and I add it to my wall. And I give him some mortar and he adds it to his wall. And this wall that built up, don't think of it as a wall around you, but it's a wall within you to separate your flesh from the spirit that dwells in you. Those things aren't meant to be separated. Yet, we've managed to build these walls. Instead of letting God work through our hurt, we expect him to work around it. We dance in his presence. We project that we have the joy of the Lord. Meanwhile, we keep all of this pain locked safely behind this wall that we've built up inside of us. We don't give it to him, but we hold on to it because we're ashamed of it. But he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So my question is, what have you used to build your wall? I know what I've used to build my wall, the wall that needs to come down. But what have you used to build yours? Do you use humor? Do you use indignation? Do you hide behind a veil of biblical knowledge? And piety? Or is it your busy schedule that provides the material to build your wall, brick by brick? Whatever it is, there's something that you use to build that wall to separate the anxiety of what it is to be human with the call and the draw of God. This reinforced concrete. We use others. We use like-spirited sufferings. And we continue to separate what God doesn't want to be separated. What I'm saying is this. God wants to reach through your pain. He wants to reach through your inadequacy. He wants to reach through my sufferings. He wants to use it. He wants to use every part of it. He wants to use every part of you for his glory. He wants your weakness. He doesn't want to use you in spite of it. It's not in spite of who you are, but it's because of what he created you to be. It's because of what you've experienced that he decides that you are worthy to be used. It's because we see David, the king, he's not ready to be king when he's first anointed as a young man. No, he has to walk through this lifetime of suffering. He's on the run. He's hiding out in caves. He's losing entire villages. He's losing his people. His men who love him talk of stoning him. 
He experiences all of these things, and then he's ready to be used as king. Because it builds us. It builds who we are. This dichotomy of what it is to be an apostle, to be a disciple, to be an apostolic. And so, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I have to acknowledge my broken state. David acknowledged it. Again, the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you would not despise, he says. God will not turn away your brokenness. If you bring it to him, he won't turn it away. If you bring your burden and you lay it upon him, he won't turn it away. He'll use it. But he doesn't want to ignore it. He wants to use. He wants to reach through it, not around it. He wants to reach through it that you would be used. All of you would be used. All of your pain, all of your experiences, all of your human condition, he would use it for his glory. He wouldn't ignore it. And so I'm coming to a close here. You have to understand that God isn't looking for perfect. Because none of us were created perfect. We were created in his image, but Jesus was the only perfect being to walk. We're not. And so there's no expectation that we would come before him in perfection. There is an expectation that we would come before him broken. He explicitly states that in his word. He says he will not despise a broken and a contrite heart. And so, when I come before him, I pray that my will would be broken in submission to him. Can we just close our eyes here? Find a way to connect with with the draw of a Savior. Find a way to connect, to respond with the calling of a Savior. He's calling you to submission. He's calling you. He's calling you to brokenness. He's calling you to a place of repentance. He's calling me to a place of repentance. And so despite this flesh and despite this walk and despite this suffering, I must find a way to respond to my God. That's the tension that lives with inside of us. Despite this life and all of it, I must find a way to respond to what he's offering me, what he's offering you. He's offering a release of burdens. He's offering life. He's offering salvation. He's offering himself, his heart, to be implanted upon yours. He's offering to change your desires to match his. He says, I'll give you the desires of your heart. How do you think he's going to do that? He's going to change your desires to match his own. He's offering that to us. It's a means of escape. It's a way out. It's a third option. Because we're not either suffering or in his presence. No. We walk through this life, and if we're real with ourselves, we find 
the hurt, we find the pain, and we find his presence. In the midst of it all, we find him. And I am, I am closing. I want to end with this. This altar, it's is a place where your Savior is offering to take on your burden. It's a place where your Savior is offering to lift you up as you submit everything over to him. It's a place where he's calling you to give it over to him. It's not a place where I kneel down and ponder the shame and the guilt that comes with being born into a life of sin. It's not a place where I get down and I reflect upon my failures and all of the inadequate parts of what it is to be me. It's a place where I get down and I submit all of those things to him. It's a place where you can get down before him and respond to the call on your life. Because we're all called to repentance. We're all called to be closer to him. We're all called to acknowledge that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We're all called to lay down our burdens at his feet. The question is, will you respond to that call? Will I respond to that call? It's always available. And this, this altar is open just as it always is. Jesus. Lord, we have family members. We have family members today that aren't living for God. We have parents today that don't see us eye to eye. They don't understand the joy that floods our soul. We have children today that have walked away from the faith. And these things, they slowly break us. They bring us to a place of brokenness. But I understand, Lord, that I can bring that brokenness before you. I understand, Lord, that I can bring that hurt before you, Jesus. And you're not going to ignore it. You're not going to work around it. But you're going to work through it. That's his promise today. He's going to work through your situation. He's not going to ignore your situation. We're pulled between God's calling and our interactions with this world. We're pulled between the things that we left behind, our former habits and our former life, and this desire to move forward in God. And it breaks us a little bit. But he says, bring your broken parts to me. He says, bring your suffering to me. Submit them to me. This is the tension that lives within us. Respond to the grace in his hand. Respond when he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Because in your weakness, my power is made perfect. In your weakness, his power is made perfect. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus, I worship you. Lord, I thank you, Jesus, for your love. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your anointing. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace. 
And I thank you, Lord, that you would carry me through it. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your plan, despite the fact that I can't see it. I can't see the end, Lord, but I know that you're in it. You're in my family members, Jesus. You're in their walk. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the assurance of who you are. Help me to respond to you today, Lord. Help me to find grace. I worship you, Jesus. Alone again. 
days to come, Lord, we would think about this word and it would give us strength to live for you. Not only just to live for you and just to make it, Lord, but that we would be victorious over all the wiles and the tricks of the devil. Thank you, Lord, for giving us understanding. We would take back what Satan has taken from us, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for delivering us from depression, for delivering us from defeat and from fear. Thank you, Lord, for your anointing as you repair the breach in our hearts and our lives and our spirits and our souls. Thank you, Lord God, for your power and your anointing right now. And we praise you and give you thanks. In Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. God bless you. We'll see you here this evening at 6 o'clock for service, 530 for prayer. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord.